modern food systems are destroying both human and planetary health, but sustainable alternatives that enhance well-being are possible. That's according to Harvard Medical School professor Walter Willett. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco-innovations that are changing the world. Dixon Despommier has a PhD in microbiology, is an ecologist and emeritus professor of public and environmental health at Columbia University. He's one of the many respected experts who've contributed to the new book, The Economics of Sustainable Food, Smart Policies for Health and the Planet. Using tall buildings as farms is an idea he first had back in 1999 when he coined the term vertical farms. It's my pleasure to introduce my friend and the godfather of vertical farming, Dr. Dixon Despommier. It's hey, Godfather. <laughs> I'm, I live in New Jersey, so the term Godfather is appropriate. <laughs> or should I call you the Tony Soprano? <laughs> well, no, 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 don't go that far, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's start out with, uh, is Walter Willett's quote, modern food systems are destroying both human and planetary health, hype, yeah. fact, or fiction? It's a fact. It's an absolute fact. I mean, he's... Uh, He's a well-quoted uh, uh, expert, but uh, that's been said by many, many other people for many, many years. And as, as you know, <clears throat> we now farm the size of South America. Yeah. That's, that's an incredible landmass to feed 7.7 .7 billion people. So a lot of ecosystems have bit the dust as a result of that. Um, what's the scale of this destruction? You know, you said it's the size of South America, but Give us a little bit more embellish upon that as far as soil, water. You bet. So one of the big uh, features of modern life is that we can now look at the planet from outer space so we can do some head counts. We can tell how many people live here, for instance. We can tell where the land masses are. We can tell what the destructive forces of human activity are. And one of them is uh, deforestation. So one of the most destructive uh, features of farming is to make room for more farms. And in order to do that, you've got to eliminate something. It's already there. And, and it seems that the hardwood forests of uh, the world have been under attack as the result of making room for more traditional farms. And so at one point before there were farms, which is about 12,000 years ago, it's estimated they were some 6 trillion trees. And today we're down to 3 trillion trees. So that's half of the Earth's ability to sequester carbon has been sacrificed for outdoor farming. That gives you some uh, scope of the scale. Well, as a vertical farmer, I remember someone asking me or telling me one time that vertical farming is not natural. And I said, well, farming's not natural. Hey, exactly. That was my answer, too. I, I love that, Robert. <laughs> no other animal does this except ants. There are some leafcutter ants in Costa Rica that actually farm leaves and, and grow fungus on it, and then they eat the fungus. But they don't cut down too many leaves to kill the tree. That's what they don't do. Yes. We would kill the tree. <laughs> nature's nature's in, in balance. Uh, we that's, aren't. And that's exactly. one of the things that's very uh, alarming out there is just the scale of what's happening. Um, I know everybody likes to point fingers. Is there a cause or an entity that we can blame for this? Because farming is quite productive. Uh, it's called homo sapiens. I think uh, that's the proper term for that one. It's an unavoidable consequence of our numbers uh, increasing and our ability to do things that um, our brain allows us to create by um, 
taking advantage of nature to turn it towards our own needs. And um, we've taken that concept a little bit too far. And, and now we have to um, backtrack and find other ways of accomplishing the same thing. Well, you wrote a chapter in this book. Could you give us a thumbnail and a quick summary of the economics of sustainability food? I'll show you the book first. Here's the book. Okay. <laughs> make sure it was a book. <laughs> it was published by Island Press. The editor uh, is uh, Nicoletta Battini. Um, she works, I believe, at the World Bank in, in Washington, D.C. And she enlisted the help of a lot of people, and I'm flattered and honored to be one of those uh, people. And I co-authored this with uh, a friend of mine, Chuck Kinersh, who is a, a Pfizer vice president and uh, very knowledgeable in policy. So our chapter deals with um, the advances in vertical farming. And of course, we did mention Green Sense Farms, and we mentioned Plenty, and we mentioned uh, Bowery Farms and Aero Farms and lots of other farms now. Um, and, there, and your role in sequestering carbon through the no need to farm outdoors hypothesis. The more you farm indoors, the less you need to farm outdoors. And so if we could add up now, I think uh, with all the indoor farms in progress, how much land that represents in terms of outdoor land, it's about one indoor acre to 100 outdoor acres that you save. And uh, we have a lot of indoor acres now, which is uh, quite remarkable considering uh, Nobody had to pay for this except the people that went into it, and I know you're one of those people. <laughs> so thank you very much for uh, having the uh, temerity to actually sit down and do it. <laughs> so your chapters on vertical farming, give us yes. a, a, a thumbnail of the whole book. What, what does it cover? The it covers mostly policy, and the policies are predicated on the fact that it's a damaged planet. And in order to come back into balance and to spend less money, trying to tread water, basically, and to stay even, you've got to reorient the way you uh, conduct business. And uh, that's what this book is about. It's, uh, it's, a, it's chucked full of uh, factoids about acidification of the ocean, deforestation, um, the need to grow more food because we have more people, the food shortages, the, food, the crop failures, the weather changes due to rapid climate change. It's filled with, it's compacted, though, uh, but most of the most of the, it's about policies that could be implemented in order to reverse a lot of this. Uh, these are things that are needed, and we can discuss uh, ad infinitum all those things. But I think the best thing to do is to educate people as to what's going on, and then to let them help decide how to get out of this. And that's what policy is all about, basically. Well, corporations, state, local governments, they generate a tremendous amount of profit and taxes from the current right. food system, and That's they right. fear change. How do we get them to buy in and change the current economic system into something that's going to be more sustainable? We can get them on board by simply showing them how they can make even more money. Okay, now you're talking. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think anybody's going to do anything for free, basically, all right? I mean, maybe academics will, we get paid and so we can do anything we want, basically. So we do things that we think will do good for the world. Uh, if you're in the real world, like you, uh, you got to feed your family and you have to make sure that your business doesn't collapse under its own weight. You have to prepare for success, which is a difficult thing to estimate because uh, in the beginning, a lot of vertical farms failed because they didn't realize they would be so successful, like farmed here, for instance. Uh, they went out of business. I know you knew those people. and. Uh, they actually exceeded their uh, customer base um, by promising them, you know, fresh crops 
every day, and they, they couldn't keep up with that. And eventually, their customers left them alone. And that's that's too bad because everybody prepares for failure, but nobody prepares for success. And I think that's the biggest uh, difficulty. So. I think what we're seeing now is a lot of industries getting involved in this, though. We've got Goldman Sachs investing. We've got uh, SoftBank investing. We've got a lot of uh, a, a lot of money has been floating around and accumulating over the COVID-19 year. And that money is going to be put to good use now. And I think you're seeing a lot of reinvestment. Well, one thing that's always bothered me, Dixon, is that I uh, was invited to come out to the city of Yuma for the uh, winter lettuce uh, harvest. They had a bad harvest one day, and they asked us to see how vertical farming can help. Right. So I looked at the water rights issue and saw uh, that uh, water was being sold for $18 an acre foot in the uh, right on that border of California and Arizona. But by the time it got to L.A., it was $1,000 an acre foot. Oh, but of course. And each of the municipalities that touch that got a cut of the taxes. And so you've got this arcane water right law that is now predicated on all these municipalities generating a tax base from it. And now you're perpetuating bad farming techniques because right. you're farming in a drought stricken desert. And instead of fostering new technologies like vertical farming or controlled environment agriculture, you're perpetuating this old system. So how do you stop something like that and you change it? I think if you look back in history, you'll realize that the same people that are farming in the Central Valley of California used to live in the American Midwest back in the 30s. And this, what happened in the 30s, of course, is an enormous weather change. And the climate, of course, went along with it. But mostly it was a weather change that lasted for about seven or eight years. And it created the Dust Bowl. And those people picked up stakes and they moved where? They moved to California. And they recreated a Dust Bowl in California by simply over-agriculturing a system of uh, geological formations that should never have been put to that purpose to begin with. But by shipping water in from Colorado uh, via the Colorado River system and all the canals that they've built, uh, and also through Sacramento and through the Sacramento River, uh, California has managed to artificially create a farm situation which for a while looks sustainable, but now we are in a big, big drought out the, in, the, in the West, and Colorado wants its water for itself. So they're going to have to rewrite all those water agreements. And when that happens, where's the alternative? I think you're looking at it. I think vertical farming is the most water-conserving way you can grow food I can think of. And, um, they're going to have to reorient their, uh, their whole economic system based on this, because if they don't, they'll end up like the Dust Bowl in the Midwest. Yeah, and it's coming quickly. You know, they don't have a but lot of, course, of time to do this. But vertical farms can be built rapidly. Maybe a lot of them don't even need to be built because they're former warehouses, former electronics assembly plants, that sort of thing. So what about everyday people uh, with less than 5% of the population living on a farm uh, yeah. and we're trying to uh, get by? Just most of us, uh, we're holding down a job, we're feeding our families. How do we get these everyday people to care enough to change a food system that they're detached from because they don't live on farms. They, they, they don't see all these issues, no, but they've right. got all these everyday life pressures they have to deal with. You're right. Well, as soon as their food shortages start to catch up to them and they start to pay double for a carton of milk and uh, a pound of cheese and a head of lettuce, and as soon as that exceeds their budgets, I think, and that's rapidly occurring, by the way, um, and the world food system is under attack also, by the way. I think we should mention that a lot of our food doesn't come from the United States. It comes from other places. So um, 
locusts attack the food in Africa, and you got a droughts in Australia, you've got uh, political unrest in a lot of other places where our food should be coming from and isn't. Um, that's not a system. It's a broken system that uh, never did work, but it, it worked for a little while. I think autonomy is the way to go, and I think vertical farming allows a local community to actually feed itself if they got smart enough to uh, establish it within that uh, sphere. Are you seeing these kinds of changes, changes already happening? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, you take some countries, for instance. Let's take Japan, Singapore, and the Netherlands as three great examples of places where vertical farming, food sovereignty, uh, and the Middle East, by the way, also I will throw them in there as well. Uh, and Denmark is another country that's wanting to have full food sovereignty. That is, they want all their food to come from their country. Um, and they are building on infrastructure right now that will probably allow that to happen. And I think Japan is the world leader in that um, right now. But I think Singapore, it's a relatively small country, very rich. They can afford this to actually build this from scratch and, and get it to start working. But I think the Netherlands will be a big player in this as well. And then once that happens, I think, those are the examples, like, I don't know if you know this or not, but Denmark is totally off the fossil fuel grid. They get all their energy from wind power. So someone just built a very large vertical farm in Copenhagen, which is totally run by wind power. They have no energy. Yeah, and, and the Nordic countries are, are a challenge because they have such small populations spread over such large areas. Oh, very, um, very true. Yeah. So think about the American Southwest. Think of the Navajo Nation, the Zunis, um, all of the Native American tribes that, that need food sovereignty because nobody else cares about them. And that's actually a crime against humanity, basically, because we've ignored them for so long. We continue to do that. But this is their solution, I think. And you see a lot of uh, uh, first peoples in Canada adopting this as a way of providing food for their local people. Um, I think. The educational factor has gone out now. Everybody understands what a vertical farm is. Everybody, uh, and you're, you're obviously one of those people that have helped uh, spread the word. Um, I think in another 10 years, every major city in the world will have vertical farming as part of its infrastructure. Well, I, I hope you're right. I, I, I've got a vested interest in it. So uh, yes, let, let's see. Philosophically uh, optimistic. <laughs> so recently I was interviewed in uh, Vertical Farm Daily. See what you started? Uh, we now have even a daily e-magazine that covers vertical farming. It's so uh, important. I haven't got my subscription. <laughs> um, so in there, I talked about unicorns, cheerleaders. I think they're football players. And the old saying, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. And I want to get your thoughts on each of these areas. So the first one is unicorns, and I'll give a little uh, background on that. Unicorns are companies that have gone public either through an IPO or a SPAC. And a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. And these companies have $1 billion valuations with little to no revenue or proven technology. Uh, and they're hyping the vertical farm market with valuations that are astronomical and are not tied to market reality. What do you think about the unicorns in the uh, vertical farming market? Are they good? Bad? Political. Let's not get political here because I've got. <laughs> well, it's not political. It's fair. I mean, it, it, I know that, but what you've just described is like uh, somebody claiming that they won an election that they didn't win. 
<laughs> but they do have valuations at a billion dollars with with no revenues or very little revenue. Money, uh, where does that money come from? It, it comes from uh, Wall Street. Well, as I said, it's either an IPO or it's a SPAC. It's a reverse IPO. Well, then they need better education. They need some people that tells them what to do with that money. And I think uh, the ones that listen will end up with a successful business and the ones that don't will just lose it all. But do you think that that's overhyping the market and setting up for failure? Because if you just do a simple calculation, if you're valued at a billion dollars and you have to sell lettuce and you have to generate a 20% return for investors, yeah, that's just on my calculation, you're, you're going to have to produce about five to 10 billion heads of lettuce. And it just doesn't seem uh, reasonable. <laughs> oh, no, I agree with you. So I, I think those are unrealistic goals and unrealistic people. Um, I'm not sure how many there are of those companies, uh, whether they're even worth paying attention to or not, but um, the companies that I pay attention to are the ones that are building third and fourth facilities in different cities. Uh, so like Aero Farms, for instance. So the point with the unicorns is, is that going to create unrealistic expectations? And now that we have this influx of capital to the vertical farming market, right. and they're chasing these you know, what I think are astronomical valuations, if these companies don't perform and generate a return on investment, is that going to hurt the marketplace? You know, I wish I could answer that question, but I'm a microbiologist, remember? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you off on that one. All right, the next one, cheerleaders. Cheerleaders that think they're football players. Vertical farming's right now sort of a feel-good kumbaya type of environment everybody's holding hands saying that this is going to save the planet and save the world with a new way to farm and you're seeing a lot of well you're seeing a number of people out there that uh, are promoting this they might be very good at social media and marketing but they have no idea what it takes to build and operate a farm right. and they're often uh, misdirecting companies or providing them with bad advice out there yeah. and and uh I see a lot of this. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, you get what you pay for. So if you're paying good money to listen to somebody talk about this, and I must confess that I have uh, offered myself up as a consultant, and I have had a number of conversations with startups, and I give them a very realistic view of this. And I, I first of all, start with the, the fact that uh, your biggest fear is not whether you fail or not, it's whether you succeed or not. And so you have to have a a formula for actual expansion of your business before you start. If you don't plan for that, then you're going to fold your tent and go somewhere else and do something else. So that's that's number one. And I can give you a number of uh, vertical farm companies that actually had that happen to them, and you can too. Um, and then I'm very optimistic with regards to what they're producing. But I would love to see a bigger crop selection. I would like to see more one-stop shop vertical farming. I would like to see um, the high-end cost of the crops that make a lot of money uh, offset the cost of raising potatoes hydroponically and uh, lettuce and uh, not lettuce but uh, celery and rutabaga and uh, blueberries and those sorts of things so that uh, people will get a brand associated with that and they will only shop at that particular vertical farm. So. It's worth going into, but it's not worth it if you can just make microgreens for a living. That's that's not going to take you very far. So you could grow anything in a vertical farm that you can grow in a greenhouse. However, the only things we can really grow profitably now are leafy greens, lettuces, baby greens, herbs, microgreens. Yep. What do you see on the horizon? What kind of crops do you think will be able to be grown in vertical farms in the future? Well, 
I think California and Texas and Florida are great examples of where our food used to come from. And it won't come from there much longer because of climate change issues. And the moment that really impacts a diet of people who really care about what they eat, uh, they're going to start supporting the concept that vertical farms should be more versatile in terms of their crop selections. And they'll pay more, a little bit more, for the same crops that they would pay ordinarily, but they can't get anymore because they're not being produced. I think shortages of food are going to create demand, which you could fill in that gap any way you want. And I think it's about you know, advertising, and it's about promoting yourself, and it's about healthy food. It's immediate, you know, one-hour-old food, like they say, one-hour-old photo. <laughs> so you've got one-hour-old food. You can't get better than that. The nutritional value is incredible. You have to do a better sell job for the other crops, that's all. And they'll willingly pay for it, I think. When I started in this field, I started as a vertical farmer, but as I've uh, been in it for 10 years now, I've migrated into controlled environment agriculture. Uh, the, the idea of growing indoors from a simple hoop house to a complex vertical farm. Um, I, I'm agnostic to how you grow. I look at the crop. I look at the, the, the uh, climate, look at the uh, capacity that needs to be uh, built. And then lastly, what the capital budget is, and then design a farm, whether it's a greenhouse or a vertical farm. What are your thoughts on that? No, that's a, that's a perfect sequence. I agree with you totally. I, I think you have to know what you want before you start. You can't build a vertical farm and then decide what to grow. I think to... <laughs> <laughs> because people do that. I mean, they say, oh, we're going to be a vertical farmer. That's, that's great. But I think you should do a careful market research first to locate your farm in a place where the demand is high find out what they're demanding and then grow that. And uh, when the tastes change, you change also. And I think a good example of that is Infarm, the company that comes out of Berlin. Uh, they've actually got in-store farming now, which is quite unique. Uh, but I know what their intentions are because I'm a, I'm a non-paid consultant, I must tell you. That <laughs> I'm on their advisory board. So uh, I've been talking about this for a while because they want a 20-story farm that has the farm in the first floor, the farm units at the next 18 floors, and there's a restaurant on top. And you walk into that store, and by the time you finish your ordering through your iPad, it's waiting for you at the checkout counter. And that's take-home meal number one. And there's no food waste. You order just enough to what you want to eat. And that's the model that they're aiming for. And I think another 10 or 15 years, and you'll be seeing some of those up and running. So the last one, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. And what, what I meant about that was the Dutch have long been leaders in uh, greenhouse growing. You know, yeah. for a very small country, they're about the fifth largest producer of vegetables and fruits and vegetables in the world. Yeah. They really are uh, leaders in this area, but they've been very reticent to embrace vertical farming. Um, you know, they, they really uh, focus more on the greenhouse growing. Understood. Do you see that changing over time? I do. In fact, I know a lot of people that uh, work at Wagnagan University, uh, which is their leading agriculture school. And uh, there's a lot of activity with regards to uh, expanding their teaching repertoire to include uh, lots of indoor farming beyond the single story buildings that they're used to. Because, as you know, Holland doesn't have a lot of land. Uh, <laughs> they've probably got as much greenhouse growing space as South Korea which is another country that uh, specializes in this. And um, both of those countries have a huge potential for making that farming um, more profitable, 
closer to the consumer uh, and more crop diversity if they would just go up rather than go out. Yeah, the Dutch, you can't, uh, you've got to look at them. They've been a real model of efficiency oh, oh, on how to have high productivity with little impact to the environment, you know, using very little land. And so, uh, but but I, I've seen a lot of the corporations there and companies be slow to embrace this. So, so I hope that changes. Um, Dixon, anything else you'd like to add about the book or your thoughts and what you're seeing out there? Well, I do have another book. <laughs> <laughs> It's my own book, but it's not the book of yours, too. This is the 10th anniversary edition of my book. Um, and wow. it, contains, it contains a new chapter uh, entitled, And Then What Happened? Because I, I wrote the chapter last year, uh, but the book was first published in 2010. And you will recall, there were no vertical farms in 2010. And today, there are so many that I didn't have room for them in the book's new chapter that I wrote. So that's just seven years worth of idea that was out there and you're obviously one of those people that uh, got inspired I, don't, I won't ask you who inspired you but i would like to think i had a little bit to do with it um at least the the data that we produced <clears throat> suggested that you can make a living doing this and um i i would now would love to see the next use for vertical farming that is in creating a brand new city because i know china does this about once a month almost <laughs> <laughs> So they, they have cities of 500,000 to a million people that have brand new, they have, uh, they're not older than 10 or 15 years. So creating a new city is not a big deal for China. It shouldn't be for anybody else either because we know how to build cities, obviously. So what characteristics of that city should there be which would allow for full food sovereignty and no grids? I'm very much against grids because grids are susceptible to failure. And if you're a building that A, sequesters carbon because you're made out of wood, B, harvests rainwater because every drop of water that falls on that building is collected, C, uh, D, or maybe C is to grow the food with the, some of the water that you collect. And finally, there is something called clear photovoltaics. You can actually paint a glass window with a solution that when it dries, will collect photons from the sun convert them to electrons and shunt them to the, to the sides of the glass where they're collected by an electrode, and that's your electricity. So a, a, an almost all glass building can generate more energy than the building actually uses. We, Using we've we've covered a couple, a couple of those innovators on the show here, uh, ones that have made glass solar panels that you could see through and also uh, paint on solar paint. So yeah, yeah there's some amazing so, things out there. What if we built a whole city like this? Yes. I, in which every building is making some food item. And that's where you get your food diversity. You know, if you had uh, a thousand buildings, uh, how many different crops do you think we consume on an average a year? Maybe 80 or 90 food crops that we use in our cuisines. And that includes India and Chinese and Japanese and American and German and all these other cuisines. The, the variety of vegetables isn't that great, uh, but it's how you use them and it's what you do with them. So well, I think a city made like this would uh, go a long way to making a statement about how you're going to save this planet. Well, as you've said before, you're not an actual vertical farmer. You're out there setting that vision and you've set that bar very high and you've created an opportunity for us because uh, we're the ones that uh, bridge that gap between vision and market reality. Uh, we, we, <laughs> I'm totally in your 
<laughs> no, and I'm in yours. So it's a great symbiotic relationship. So we appreciate you having you on the show. Congratulations on the new book. And uh, don't be a stranger. Let's uh, talk sooner than, uh, than a year. <laughs> I would like that very much. Thank you very much, Robert. That's Dr. Dixon Despommier. He's one of the authors of The Economics of Sustainable Food, Smart Policies for Health and the Planet. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is GreenSense, with a reminder for you to check out the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM, WBBM, Chicago.